If you would, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. As we've been seeing, James wrote a letter, which is actually a sermon in the form of a letter, to the believers who have left Jerusalem due to persecution, and now they are scattered among the nations, as he writes in the first verse. I think I've probably mentioned this every sermon thus far, that the readers, the original readers of this letter are Jewish. They're either from Judea or Galilee. They know the Old Testament. They've heard the apostles. Some of them may have even actually heard Jesus during his earthly ministry. So what we have here in the book of James is not a letter intended to inform, but rather to remind them and to encourage them, exhort them, even command them. As I've mentioned, there are 50 imperatives in 108 verses. That's one every two verses. But before he gets to the sermon proper, James has an extended introduction. In part, what he is seeking to do is to correct their thinking. He'll mention words and like, oh, I know what that means. And it's like, yeah, you probably don't. What is joy? What are trials? What is wisdom? What is freedom? Joy they may have handle, had a handle on, but not in terms of trials. One does not think, yeah, let's, let's be joyful because we have trials. Um, I think they probably were more open to this than modern believers are. Um, they understood to a certain degree that joy was anchored in the past, what God had done for his people, Israel, and that God had made promises of what he was going to do in the future. In the present moment, which may not be very pleasant, there is still supposed to be joy, past, present, and future. Trials, I think they may have imagined, were sort of relegated to the category of sufferings. In fact, I've mentioned if you go upstairs and look at the various Bible dictionaries and you look under trials, it'll say, see suffering. There actually isn't anything under trials. It's all suffering. And what James shows them here is, in fact, that everything is a trial. Everything is a test. And it's fascinating that he uses the example of poverty, that we would get, but wealth, mm, that seems strange. That's a trial, that's a test. Um, trials are tests by which we have an opportunity either to obey God or to be disloyal and to turn away from him. As he says, they come in different forms. They come unexpectedly, which they shouldn't. We should expect trials. And they ambush us. So what are you to do in the face of trials? You need wisdom. And they would know about wisdom because you have Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom books in the Old Testament. But as Jesus said at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, that everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Wisdom means putting into practice what one has learned. And then finally, there's the issue of freedom. Um, he says, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this and not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The readers or the, who first 
read this letter might have thought, and even today, law gives freedom. I mean, law seems to be the opposite of freedom. I want to be free, and the law says, no, you can't do that. Um, it's possible that James readers either had heard Jesus say this or they heard it from the apostles. This is from John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed in him. Jesus is speaking to believers, at least those who had put their faith in him at that point. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. You can probably finish the rest of the verse. And the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So to be a believer in Jesus is to have freedom. But now John, or sorry, James is talking about the law and freedom. What is freedom? It is the opportunity, it is the ability to give expression to who we truly are. We are free when we live a life appropriate to those who are made in God's image. We are creatures in the image of the creator. In the same way, the call to love is in the two great commandments. It's not a rule. You know, it's like, oh man, that's something terrible. I, I have to love the Lord my God. I have to love my neighbor as myself. If God is love, he's the creator, we're made in his image, we're creatures, then it makes sense as bearers of the image of God that we would be marked by love. That's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. We are, in fact, to love God and to love our neighbors. So it is in the law that we find out who we really are, how we are to live. By the way, the command to love your neighbor is not a New Testament thing. This isn't something that Jesus created. This is, in fact, something we find in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. I think most people, as they read through the Bible, sort of skip over Leviticus. Yeah, but this verse says, love your neighbor as yourself. Living when and where we do, we need to understand that the act of choosing is not freedom itself. Choosing well is freedom. Obeying God's law is freedom. We do not have the freedom to do what we want. We must choose well. And how do we learn what we should choose? In God's word. So we should keep in mind that this is a book of imperatives. They already know what God has said. They simply aren't putting it into practice. And James writes this sermon, this letter, to tell them what they should do. In verse number 22 of chapter 1, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The introduction is almost finished. We have two more verses. Look, if you would, at verses 26 and 27. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This, I would argue, is, this is the basis of the sermon. There are three points to his sermon, and they're found in these two verses. But there is a problem of sorts, and that is, there are two words here, religion and religious. 
And the problem is, how do we define these words? Um, let me just tell you, I, I wish that the translators, and I looked at multiple translations, and they all use the words religion and religious. I wish that they had chosen a different word. Because in Greek, which is what James wrote this letter in, there is no word for religion. There is no word for religious. Um, what happened is that when the Bible was first translated into Latin, uh, the translator, uh, Jerome, used the word religio, and ever since then, people have gone with that. There are two books that I tell my students about uh, with the matter of religion. One is called The Meaning and End of Religion by William or Wilfred Cantwell-Smith, um, and then a book that came out in 2009, uh, The Myth of Religious Violence, in which the second chapter is The Invention of Religion. Uh, I require my students to read this second, this second chapter here. He points out that outside of the modern West, that's us right now, there is no significant concept equivalent to what we think of as religion. So if you live in 2023 and you read these verses, you'll be thinking something I think quite different than what James intends. Smith also says that religion is an invention of the modern West. Ancient languages have no equivalent for it, and Greek doesn't, and James is writing this. So you can see we have a problem here, you know, that he tells us, in fact, um, that religion that our Father accepts, as pure and faultless as this. Um, see, most people today, I don't know that it was the case in James's day, but in, in our day, most people think of religion as something quite personal, interior. It's, it's what I believe in my heart. Um, but if you look at the verses again, what does James say? What does God accept as pure religion? To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Um, and what religion is worthless, he says, someone who does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. These are all external activities. These aren't internal impulses, something that you feel, this warm, fuzzy feeling. It is, in fact, the way that you act. So why does James use the word religion, the word religious? He doesn't. That's the whole point. Uh, Jerome in the fourth century is the one who, when he translated it from Greek into Latin, came up with this word and it's been with us ever since. There is a word that, well, the word that he uses, actually in Greek, threskeia, um, actually speaks of outward activities. Okay, it speaks of ceremonies, what people would do in temple worship. So what is he talking about in these verses? Well, He's getting, he's fleshing out, he's giving examples of what he said, obedience to the perfect law that gives freedom. If you are going to obey God's law, this is what you should do. And so he speaks of three marks of genuine obligation, commitment. Unfortunately, the word used is religion. A controlled tongue, a caring for the needy, 
and personal holiness. Why these three? I mean, he could have picked any number of things. Well, I think he is, in fact, fleshing out the previous passage. Um, But also he's saying, you know what? You're God's children. And this is the way that God is. And this is the way that you should be. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. It points to a controlled tongue. And then he said in verse 5, he should ask God who gives generously to all. We should be like our Father, caring for those in need and giving generously to those who are in need. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. It's a call to personal holiness. We should be like him. James's teaching about how we should live is based on what he discerns to be true about God our Father. I said these two verses are critical to the rest of the book because in chapter 2, he will write about caring for others, for those in need. In chapter 3, he will talk about a controlled tongue. In chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, he will talk about living a holy life. It's interesting, he, you know, he says controlled tongue, caring for others, um, and then living a holy life. Um, but he, in his sermon, he, chapter 2 actually begins with caring for others. And then the controlled tongue, he sort of messes up the order. Um, one might wonder why. Um, I think what we have to do is look at verse number 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. These are three truths about our Father. He cared for the helpless. He chose to give us birth. His word is truth, that's the controlled tongue, and his purpose is holiness, that we might be the first fruits, a kind of first fruits of all he created. First fruits, the Jews would know what this meant, because in the Old Testament law, um, whatever were the first harvest, that belonged to God. It belonged to him, it was his specifically. The firstborn child belongs to God. It is an annual reminder for an agrarian society that the Lord keeps his promises to his people. These are set apart as holy to God. They belong to God. And we are to be the same way. So you know the expression, like father, like son? Um, James is saying, like father, like children. This is the way our father is. He cares for those in need. He gives us his word of truth. And he is one who is holy. The first feature is mentioned in verse number 26, a controlled tongue. He doesn't call us to silence, um, but to control our tongues. Um, We get to chapter 3, he will talk about a bridle on a horse. Um, He's already told us that we are to be slow to speak, but he will flesh this out further in chapter 3. Here, I think what James is doing is he is making a connection that people oftentimes may not make. It's something that Jesus had to point out. For out of the overflow of the heart, as the King James has it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever's inside is what comes out. Now, it is possible to be a total hypocrite and to keep inside what's inside and, and, and talk nice to other people. 
Um, that's possible, but if you do that, then in fact you are deceiving yourself. The second feature is caring for those in need. Uh, if God is our Father, then certain evidence needs to be needs to be uh, there. We need, in fact, to to make it apparent to the world and to ourselves and to each other that God is our Father, that we care for those who are in need. If you read the book of Psalms, you hear time and time again, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. This is God. And if he's our father, then we should be like him. Um, If you read the Old Testament law, you find, you you have these people who have been enslaved for four centuries, they are now liberated And they are told time and time again that they are to care for those in need. If anyone should understand what it's like to be in need, it should be a nation of slaves. And now that they are free and now that they are prospering, they shouldn't forget about others who are in need. The third feature is keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Um, Up to this point, the two first points, that is caring for those in need and you know, keeping a tight rein on your tongue. One could argue that this is true for all people. You don't have to be a Christian to, to know that you should control your speech or that you should care for those, that you should be philanthropic. You don't have to be a Christian for that to be true in your life. It's the third feature, though, that is a radical departure that we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And the key idea here is the world. As used in the New Testament, it it, uh, points to the whole human realm of activity, which happens with no thought for God. Um, As one writer has put it, the world is anything and everything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus over our lives. And so you, you can be an atheist philanthropist. And you can be an atheist who controls his or her speech. But to keep oneself from not being polluted by the world, you are already in the world because you stand in opposition to God. We are faced by the world's endless bombardment toward our senses, our thoughts, our imaginations. There's an erosion, if you wish, of our values and standards. It is very easy for us to be polluted by the world. But if we are to be holy as our Father is holy, we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. I mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday that a lot of people, I don't hear it so much, but it used to say, what would Jesus do? Um, and I think that that's the wrong question. The right question is, what did Jesus do? And this is recorded in the Gospels. And the epistles are telling us about Jesus, what in fact Jesus did do, how we are supposed to live. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. He lived the law. When we read the New Testament admonitions, these aren't simply 
okay, if you're a Christian, here's a list of rules, the do's and don'ts that you are supposed to do. They are, in fact, a description of the life that Jesus lived while he was here on earth. So, James has told us, if we are God's children, three things need to be true of us. Were they not true of Jesus? Did he control his tongue? Did he care for those in need? Did he keep himself from being polluted by the world, though Satan tempted him before his ministry? Yes to all three questions. We are to follow his example. Now we are ready for the sermon proper. And now we come to chapter 2. Beginning with caring for those in need. This is to be a true reflection of our faith, but it probably isn't what we are expecting. Let's read the first four verses here in chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James begins his sermon with an illustration. He does so to unpack what it means to care for those who are in need. Those who have, as Jerome has put it, religion, a pure and faultless religion. This is the story. The believers have met together, and the word in Greek is the root for synagogue, so it's a gathering of people. The believers have gathered together. And two other believers come in. One is a wealthy person, or he has all the trappings of wealth. He has a gold ring and fine clothes. And the other believer is someone who is sort of shabbily dressed. He's not dressed like the rich believer is. Um, The word in Greek, by the way, is beggar. So someone who is a beggar, a believer, comes into the congregation. To the wealthy believer, you say, oh, we've got a special place for you. Comfortable chair. Uh, and remember, there weren't church buildings back then. They met in people's homes. So here's the best, the best chair in the house. And to the poor believer, a choice is given. You notice that? The rich man is not given a choice. It's like, here's the best seat. And the poor man is like, well, you know, you can either stand or you can sit at my feet. Not wonderful choices. What are the differences between these two people? There are probably many differences, but the one that James is concerned about is external appearance. The one looks important, the other inconsequential. And the seating of the two reflects partially or partiality as well as favoritism. Now, just a side note here. I, I want to be careful. I don't think that James is saying that we should treat everyone equally. Okay, I'm not, I'm not a heretic, but bear me out. We are told in a number of places in Scripture that we are to show respect and honor to whom honor and respect is due. Okay. So in Leviticus 19, again, it's the law. Rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God, I am the Lord. 
So those who are older are to be shown respect. So if, in fact, we would rework this story that James is saying, and two people come in and one is older, an older, an elderly person, and one is a younger person, I don't think James would mind that we would say to the elderly person, here, sit here. If you're on a bus, if you're on the metro, and all the seats are taken, and someone who is elderly comes in, it's appropriate that you stand and say, here, take my seat. Okay? Um, but that's not what's going on here. Okay? What's going on here is the appearance, and somebody looks important, and the other one does not look important. And if, in fact, we show partiality, we have sinned. What, why is it a sin? Is, is discrimination a sin? Um, I think there's a phrase that sort of slips by us that says, among yourselves. Um, this is a gathering of believers. I think some people would like to read this as you have a group of Christians come in and then two non-Christians come in. No. They're two brothers. One seems important, one seems inconsequential. It is in the church that we are to learn and to practice to live out the truth of the gospel. We are to treat each other with respect and not make judgments based on externals. This is where we learn to do that. And then by God's grace, we go out and we put that into practice in the world. If we fail to do such things in the church, then why would we put it into practice out there? And I would argue that the church has, in fact, failed to put this into practice. The church has been marked by discrimination. And so we shouldn't be surprised if, in fact, Christians discriminate just as much as non-Christians. But I want to back up a minute and to start something that we will continue by God's grace next week. Um, and that is, there's a key word here that unfortunately in the NIV we don't find. And it is, in fact, the key to this whole chapter. It is the word faith. Uh, in the King James, it says, My brethren, do not have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Uh, the ESV says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Faith, belief, are the noun forms of the verb believe. Okay. So we have, as believers, that's a noun, okay. It is, it's those who believe, those who have faith. It is worth noting that in Greek, the word faith and the word believe have the same root. Um, faith is pistis and belief is pistuin okay? but the romance languages which is what our English comes from we find different words so in Latin um, the noun for faith is fides that's faith and the verb to believe is credere it's not even close and then in Spanish, you have the noun is fe, and the verb is creer. 
So it's had its impact in English. So we have two different words, faith and believe. And somehow we do not make the connection that they are in fact the same. One is a noun, the other is a verb. I mention this because it may in fact create a dichotomy in the way that we think. A difference between what you believe and how you act. And that should not be the case. That's the problem with James Reader, and they're doing Greek. I mean, they know it's the same, come from the same root word. We might have a small excuse, but I'm going to take that away from you. Um, believing and acting are, in fact, the same. One source has written about faith the following. Faith is a word that has had poor press in the 20th century. Many regard it as simple-mindedness, and as an expression of an uncritical spirit inappropriate to men and women who have come of age. So in our time, people talk about faith versus reason. That faith is somewhat mindless, it's superstition, it's hoping, wishing, and reason is science, you know, that something that you can prove. Um, I don't think the church has really helped in this regard because I think the church has really abused this word. Um, it's become reduced to almost a simplistic formula, almost a magical formula. Uh, if you have faith, this can happen. If you have good enough faith, if you have strong enough faith. Um, but faith is the key to what James is talking about here about caring for those in need. It appears 12 times in this book. Uh, in the NIV, it's only nine, I'm sorry, 10, because what we see in verse number one. Um, but in chapter one, we saw it in verse number six. But when you ask, you must believe. Again, that's the word faith there, okay? And we find it in ESV. You must uh, let him ask in faith, okay? It appears once, in chapter uh, one, once in chapter five, the rest of the time, it's all in chapter two. It's all about caring for those who are in need. That's, I think, pretty significant. Because caring for those in need could see, be seen as ph philanthropy, charity. What does faith have to do with that? Perhaps next Sunday or the Sunday after, we will get to verses 14 through 26, in which uh, faith is mentioned seven times. It's critical to understanding about caring for those in need. In this chapter, James tells his readers, first of all, what they should not do, verses 1 through 7, what we should do, verses 8 through 13, and then the evidence that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing is the rest of the chapter from verses 14 to 26. I've mentioned this before, but I think that James was probably the first book of the New Testament that was written. He's writing to those who have left because of persecution. So as he writes this, the scripture that his readers have and that he has is the Old Testament. 
If this is the first book of the New Testament written, then there is no New Testament. It's all the Old Testament. But there is also the life of Jesus. He didn't have the writings of Paul, and Paul would write probably more than a decade later, and it might have been helpful, but James doesn't have it. He has the Old Testament. He doesn't even have the book of Hebrews, which which is also written to the Jews, where we are told that uh, faith is being sure of what uh, what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. So he has to look to the Old Testament, and we should as well, to what faith is. Lord willing, we will look next week at what faith was in the ministry of Jesus, but let's look at it in the Old Testament. Um, In the Old Testament, as one writer puts it, it is impossible to discuss faith in isolation because it is associated with a cluster of ideas that have a focal point in covenant, God entering into covenant with people. This cluster embraces trust, reliance, obedience, and loyalty. What we have in the Old Testament are a series of stories of God's interactions with his people. These these incidents are found in stories. They are supplemented with prayers that we find in the book of Psalms. If we're going to look at faith in the Old Testament, the place to start, obviously, is with Abraham. And we just finished looking at the life of Abraham. He is seen as the father of faith. He is our example. The New Testament writers refer to Abraham quite a bit. In fact, a number of them quote the same verse, Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. We find this at least three times in Scripture, in Romans 4, um, also in verses 9 and 23, and then Galatians 3, and now in chapter 2 of James, verse 23. As wonderful as this statement is, that Abraham believed God, I think if it is taken in isolation or misunderstood, um, we're in serious trouble. If you think that believing is simply Okay, I believe. It's like this mental thing that you do. I assent. You said something. I agree with you. I believe what you have to say. Then, in fact, um, we will miss the whole point of the life of Abraham. We have God giving him promises and then commandments. We have an inward orientation, and then we have his behavior. We have God's initiative, Abraham's responses. We have faith and we have obedience. We should not separate them. We should not separate faith and obedience, God's promises and God's commandments, God's initiative and Abraham's responses. Let me just read to you the first uh, verses in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. God commanded Abraham 
and Abraham obeyed. This is what is referred to when it talks about him believing God and it is credited to him as righteousness. You see, faith is not simply responding to God's promises. I remember as a child, we used to sing a song, which now I realize is quite mistaken. Uh, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. And then at the end, every promise in the book is mine. Yeah, no, that's not the case. But God has made promises to us, okay? And he made promises to Abraham. But the issue is not believing the promises, it's believing God. Faith is not to be in the promises, but in God himself. God entered into a covenant, into an agreement with Abraham. And Abraham's faithfulness, his believing, was not simply, oh, God made these promises, and so I'm going to go with that. But in fact, he was in a relationship with God. A relationship. Not simply like, okay, I believe what you have to say. I think it's worth noting that in our time, the opposite of faith is oftentimes seen as unbelief or atheism. But in the Old Testament, and indeed throughout human history, the opposite of believing in God is believing in something else. Because you will believe. The question is, what will you believe in? But there's a difference. Christian faith, biblical faith, is personal. You believe in God. You believe God. Whereas paganism, atheism, whatever you want to call it, anything that is not Christian is in fact quite impersonal. Quite impersonal. There is no relationship. We are made in the image of God. He has told us how we are to live as his creatures and we believe him and we are to do what he tells us to do. God's people were called to keep faith with him, that is, to be loyal to him, to be loyal to the covenant. They are not to be loyal to anyone else. They are not to put their faith in anything else. There should be no rebellion. There should be no sense of, no, actually, I, I think I will do it a different way. There is the call to obey God. Don't be double-minded. Don't have one foot in belief and one foot in unbelief. We are to believe God. By the way, isn't this seen in the great commandment? We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That speaks very personally. It isn't purely a mental or intellectual exercise. We have time. Let's, let's look at faith in the ministry of Jesus. There's a lot of things we could look at, but I'll just mention a few. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the most prominent use of faith and believing is in connection with Jesus' miracles. We find Jesus healing in response to faith. Either of the one who is suffering or in the case of the man who is let down through the roof, the faith of his friends. The picture that we get in these miracles, I think oftentimes is quite wrong, 
It is, in fact, practical trust. I believe that you can do this. I mean, why else tear off the ceiling of the house and lower this man down through the roof? You do it because you have practical trust. You put your faith into action. And the key to this is not the quantity of your faith. I have big faith. No. The issue is to whom is your faith directed? Jesus is quite clear. Um, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. So we see faith in the Gospels as practical trust in Jesus. Jesus is there. And people believe that he can heal them. The second way that we see it used in the ministry of Jesus is when it describes the proper response to the gospel. That is, to believe is in fact the mark of one who is a disciple. It's spelled out in Matthew chapter 18 as believing in Jesus. It is interesting that in the Gospel of John, we do not find the word faith. It's quite remarkable. That's in English, though. The verb believing is found a hundred times. Believing is seen as that, is seen as that which God requires of his people. In John chapter 6, the people ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? What does God want us to do? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Was it controlled tongue, carry for others, keeping? No. To believe in the one he has sent. Again, that personal connection. You are, in fact, to believe. You put your trust in the one God has sent. Indeed, this is why John writes his gospel. He tells us at the end. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In writing his gospel, John uses believing in two particular ways. First of all is what one is to believe. We are to believe that and then a truth regarding Jesus. Okay? And the second is who we are to believe in, and that is the person of Jesus. More than 70 times in the Gospel of John, it's directed toward believing in Jesus. I think that's right. I've got here in my notes almost 70 times more than half of them directed to others. They are to believe in Jesus. And what is one to believe? Is one simply to say, oh yes, I I accept that. I believe that. John chapter 6 is an amazing chapter because we find people believing less and less and less as the chapter goes on. It's the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. And at the end, the majority of people who believed in Jesus, they're gone. They have left. 
And then Jesus finally said, you know, he looks at the 12, the 12 disciples are like, you know, are you guys going to leave too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? What person? To whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Faith is, in fact, personal. It is relational. When we have faith in God, it isn't simply, oh, God's made all these wonderful promises. If I say this prayer, then I'm going to heaven. It is an ongoing relationship with God. And if that is what faith is, and somebody comes in and you find them to be inconsequential and you treat them that way, then you don't have faith. You're not living out your faith. You are, in fact, discriminating. Well, you know, when James said, you know, the three marks of a pure religion, you know, you are to care for others, we really didn't think he would start out with discrimination, did we? But that's the perfect way to start because it shows that faith is to be rooted in personal relationships. It is, in fact, believing and acting in faith. Lord willing, we will continue this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are creatures. We are made in your image. Uh, Somehow we forget that, and we like to imagine that we are the creators. We have your word, and yet somehow we manage to mangle it to fit our own ideas. You've called us to control our tongues, to care for those who are in need, to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. You call us to live in faith, not simply a set of things that we say, yes, I believe that, I confess that to be true, but that we live it out in our lives day by day. And as we've seen, everything is a test, everything is a trial. And so we need wisdom from you that we hear the words and we put them into practice. Honestly, on our own, that's that's impossible. That is mission impossible for us. We cannot do it in our own strength. And so we look to you, a Father who cares for those in need, who has given his word of truth, and who is thrice holy, 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 holy. May we take these things to heart and think on them in the days to come. And as James tells us, not be hearers only, but doers as well. I thank you for your great patience with us, your great grace, and above all, for your love. Thank you for bringing us together today. Walk with us as we know you do through the rest of this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.